1 Corinthians chapter 10. You there? All right, let's stand and read God's word together. It's also in the Bible, or excuse me, in the Believer's Fellowship app, the sermon notes. You can follow along. The Apostle Paul's writing in verse 1, and he says, I don't want you to forget, brothers and sisters, about how our ancestors in the wilderness, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as an example to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did. Let's pray over the word this morning. Father, I pray that you would use your word today to speak to us. Use me to speak your word in a way that's understandable and relatable and transformational. God, I pray that when I sit down today, that after I have spoken, they won't have heard my words, but they would have heard your words today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord this morning. We're, we've been looking at the book of Exodus We've been looking at the people of Israel as they were led out of Egypt and into freedom. The last time I preached, which was two weeks ago, we looked at how God led the Israelites out of Egypt on dry land. We talked about everybody needs a Red Sea experience. Remember, we talked about how you need that experience where you're cutting dry, you're drawing a line in the sand and saying, I'm not going back to Egypt. God has delivered me, God has saved me, and God has set me free. But now we're moving on from the story of leaving Egypt and we're entering into the period of Israel's history where the newly freed people spent time in the wilderness. We're looking at now following God in the wilderness. Where uh, Exodus 14 is where we looked last time, and that is where God splits the Red Sea. Moses leads the people on dry ground. And then you turn the page to Exodus 15, and you see that they are on the other side of the sea. The, the waters have closed in on the armies of Pharaoh, and they have a, just a praise break. They just stop on the, on the side of the beach and they pull out all their instruments and they start singing and they start shouting and they start dancing and they're just celebrating what God has done. They're singing about the glorious praises of the miracle working God who brought down 10 plagues on Egypt to set them free, who miraculously and supernaturally parted the water so that they could lo- go through on dry land. It's this amazing worship service where they cry out, the Lord has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. Victory is the Lord's. And that's verse 15, chapter 15, verse 21. But then the very next verse, as soon as church is over, as soon as the preacher dismisses and says, that's enough praise. We've, we've been, we got to move on. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, they went three days into the wilderness. See, every believer needs a Red Sea experience But also, I want to suggest that every believer needs a wilderness season. The wilderness is a valuable place. The wilderness is important. See, let me me tell you about the wilderness for a second. 
A wilderness season in the life of a believer is the gap between receiving a promise from God and actually experiencing the promise of God. And there's almost always a gap when God begins to speak to you and begins to tell you things about what he wants to do in your life. He's going to promise it. And then there's almost always a gap of time before you see and experience that promise come to fruition. The wilderness season is the season where you learn to trust in the promise maker as the promise keeper. The wilderness is the place where God teaches his people how to live like God's people. It's where you find out how to live the way God called you to live. You are different because you have been called by God. You are different because you have gone through the blood, you have gone through the water, and now you're going to the promise. And God says, if you want the promise, you've got to be different than the rest of the world. And so the wilderness is where he teaches you how to be his people. God used the Red Sea to get the people out of Egypt, but he used the wilderness to get Egypt out of the people. It was where they had to unlearn some Egyptian habits and learn some kingdom habits. They had to unlearn some slave habits and learn some freedom habits. That's what the wilderness is. It is God's school of the spirit. See, the Red Sea is where you get born. It's representative of your salvation. It's representative of getting born again. That's where you get born. The Red Sea is where it starts, but the wilderness is where you grow and mature. The wilderness is where you learn how to dig roots in your faith. The wilderness is where you learn how to trust God and walk by faith. The wilderness is where you learn to lean on God and depend on God and rely on God. If you only go through the sea, but you resist the spirit as he's leading you into the wilderness, you'll just stay on the beach, always with Egypt in your rearview mirror. Always with the idea, well, things get tough, I can just make myself a canoe and I can just go back. I can just paddle on back to Egypt. I can go back to where I was. See, God designs the wilderness to put as much territory as possible between you and your old life. To put, you, put as much territory as possible between you and sin. You know, I have sometimes as a pastor, people will ask me, is this a sin? Or is that a sin? Or is this okay? Or is that not okay? And my answer is always, if you're asking the question, you must have some reservations about it. And the question isn't, how close can I stay to sin? We don't ask the question, where's the line where we cross into sin so I can get as close as to it as possible without crossing it? If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. It's not how close can I get to it before it becomes sin. The question is, how far can I get away from it? And the wilderness teaches you, you've got to put some territory between you and sin. You've got to put some territory between you and slavery. If you get too close, you're always just one step away from going back. But if you put as much territory as possible between you and your old life, you won't even be tempted to go back. God will get Egypt out of you. He'll get slavery out of you. He'll get sin out of you if you'll follow him into the wilderness. Why do babies fall out of the bed when they're sleeping? When you take them out of the crib and put them in their first bed, why do they fall out of the bed? Because they sleep too close to where they got in. Let that sink in a second. 
Why do young believers, oftentimes, the statistic says someone can get saved and six or eight weeks later, most people who have an, a salvation encounter with God, within six or eight weeks, they're back to their old life. Why? They stayed too close to where they got in. They said, okay, I got saved and forgiven and I'll just, I'll, I'll not compromise on a few things, but I don't want to go in the wilderness. I'll just stay here at the beach and see Egypt across the horizon. Why do they fall away? Because they stay too close in. Why is discipleship important? Why is accountability as a believer important? Why is it important to have a pastor or a leader that will speak into your life and ask the hard questions and ask you, have you read your Bible today? Have you prayed today? Are you in God's word? What's going on in your life? Have you put down the bottle? Have you quit looking at that on your phone? Have you, why is that important? Because the pastor, the leader, the Moses in your life is trying to get you as far away as possible from your old life. That's not, none of that's in my notes. We'll just... Keep going. If you don't, if you resist the Spirit's leading into the wilderness, you'll never grow. You'll never mature. You'll never be stable. You'll never experience the fullness of God's promise in your life. Remember, God did not promise Israel just freedom. He promised them new land. He promised them a home. He promised them that he, that he would create for them a whole nation that was theirs to have. And so if they just stayed on the side of the ocean, they would have never experienced the fullness of God's problem, God's promises. You'll just stay on the edge of the sea looking out and seeing if you can still see Egypt. The wilderness is a valuable place. Now let me add this real quick. Disclaimer. Big, bold letters, stars, and everything. Disclaimer, the wilderness is not fun. Nobody likes the wilderness. But not everything that is necessary is always fun. And not everything that is fun is always good for you. How many is thankful God gives us what we need, not what we want? Amen? Over and over again in Scripture, God used the wilderness to prepare His people for His promises. Moses, we looked a few weeks ago, he spent 80 years of his life. He, he was in the wilderness where he was being prepared to how to survive in the wilderness as a shepherd. This was before he ever went back to Egypt to set people free. God gave him a season in the wilderness. The prophet Elijah Right after his amazing encounter on Mount Carmel, where he called down fire and it burned up the offering on that wet altar, and then he defeated all of the false prophets of Baal. Where did Elijah go immediately after that incredible victory to the wilderness? He spent time in the wilderness. John the Baptist in the New Testament spent most of his ministry where? In the wilderness, calling people to repentance and into a baptism in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah. The Apostle Paul, we know the story about how he got saved on the Damascus Road. He saw the, he, he saw the resurrected Lord. He was knocked on the ground. He was blinded. But we forget that after that incredible experience on the Damascus Road, Paul tells us in Galatians that he went three years in the wilderness of the Arabian Peninsula where God taught him the faith. He said, I didn't receive the faith and I didn't receive this belief system from man. God himself, Jesus himself, spent time with me in the wilderness, the school of the Spirit taught me how to be an apostle, taught me how to be a follower of Jesus Christ, taught me how to evangelize, taught me how to pray, taught me how to seek God, taught me how to prophesy, taught me how to heal the sick. He spent three years in the wilderness in preparation. And then Jesus himself, 
after his baptism by his cousin John the Baptist. If you, lo- if you go back and read that story, he is there and he is uh, uh, baptized and he has this incredible experience where the heavens open up, the voice of the Father speaks down on Jesus and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it says that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and rests on him like a dove. And then the very next verse says that Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Because sometimes, right after a great encounter with God, God will purposefully lead you into the wilderness. Right after you have a dynamic encounter with God, maybe it's when you got saved, maybe it's when you got baptized in the Holy Ghost, maybe it's when you had a, you were healed, maybe it's when you, you saw someone in your family come to faith that you've been praying for, but whatever that amazing encounter was that you had with God, it is oftentimes you will have a wilderness experience immediately after. And you oftentimes hear people talk down on those wilderness experiences and they'll say, you know what? Watch out for those spiritual highs because there's a spiritual low right after. Don't don't get too happy or excited because there's going to be a dry season right after. And we almost even blame those dry seasons on the devil. We say that, you know what, the devil has attacked me after this, this amazing encounter with God. And yes, he does that sometimes, but I have found that most of the time, it's not the devil at all. Most of the time, it's God saying, can you walk out that spiritual high experience in a dry place? Can you learn how to dig for water when there is no water? Can you spend time in my word when nobody's telling you to spend time in my word, when it doesn't feel good, when it's not fun? Can you pray when you don't want to? Can you believe in faith? Can you tithe when the money gets tight? Can you give to missions when the money? Can you believe me when things seem impossible? So we oftentimes, we become conditioned to believe that if any season or experience is uncomfortable, then that must not be God. We do this. Well, I don't like this season, so there's no way that God's in it. It's quiet in this Presbyterian church. We have become conditioned to believe that God is primarily concerned with our comfort. And so therefore, if I'm experiencing anything outside my comfort zone, then God, this must not be God's will for my life. But I want you to know that while, yes, God loves you, he wants to bless you, he wants to provide for you, he wants to take care of you, those promises in Scripture do not necessarily mean he is interested in ensuring your creature comforts. Just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's from the devil. And just because you're in a wilderness season doesn't mean that you've done something wrong, that you're out of God's will, doesn't mean that God's mad at you, doesn't mean that the devil's attacking you. It simply means God is taking you on a journey through a valuable place to get you to the promise he has for you. The wilderness for season for Israel in the book of Exodus was not an attack. It was an opportunity. We always talk, well, well the, you know, things are dry and spiritually in my life, or I'm struggling in my life, or I don't know where to go next, or I, I, I'm in this in-between phase in my relationship with God. He's promised me something, but I haven't experienced it yet. I haven't seen it come to pass in my life. And we say, that's an attack. No, it's not an attack. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to grow deeper in your faith. I've been in ministry now for full, for full time for 10 years, and people will come to me and they'll say, I'm in a desert season. I'm in a dry 
dry season. God's not speaking to me. I don't know where to go next. I know I've been called to this, but I haven't seen it happen yet. I know I've been promised this, but it hasn't occurred yet. And we talk about these seasons like it's a bad thing. But when I hear that as a pastor, I get excited because the wilderness means he sees something in you worth growing in you and worth drawing out of you and worth pulling out of you. And if you'll keep following him, even in the wilderness, it will be a good thing. It will be a boot camp. It will be a schooling. It will be necessary and for your maturity and growth. Don't despise what God is doing while you're waiting. Now, not to get ahead of myself too much, but it is true that sometimes we spend more time in the wilderness than we have to. And we'll find that out as we look through the scripture here. We're going to see in the coming passages that Israel ended up spending a lot more time in the wilderness than God wanted them to because they had trouble trusting God and obeying God. Three lessons very quickly of the people of Israel in the wilderness. Learning to trust God as a healer, learning to trust God as a provider, and learning to trust God as a redeemer. Look at Exodus 15. Again, they're, they're having their praise break. They're celebrating. God's been so good. He, the horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. Three days later, they went into the wilderness and found no water. And then when they came to a place called Mara, Mara means bitter. When they came to a place called bitter, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. And therefore, it was named Mara. And it says, verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? In three verses, they went from praising to grumbling. I pastored that church before. The people who'd been slapping Moses on the back and giving him an attaboy, man, you, you let us out of there. We beat Pharaoh. We, we, the, God has blessed us and he's taken us. Those same people let the bitter water of the wilderness turn their hearts and their words bitter toward their leader and toward their God. Now here's a leadership principle. Every time you see in scripture that the people come and complain to Moses, Moses cries out to God. Every time there's an issue, Moses turns and talks to God. Look at verse 24 and 25. The people grumbled against Moses and said, what shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. How many knows that sometimes God answers prayers in unlikely ways? If I was Moses, I was thinking, I don't need logs for a fire. I need water. Why are you showing me a log? But remember how I've taught you that every page of the Bible points to Jesus? That every single page of the Bible is pointing us toward Jesus. So the log that we're reading in Scripture in Exodus chapter 15, it's just a type, a symbol, a shadow of things that are to come. Even thousands of years before the man Jesus walked the earth, God was speaking to his people about a Messiah who would come to establish his kingdom, to suffer and die and be resurrected. All through the Old Testament, you see these shadows, these prophetic symbols, and the piece of wood that God showed Moses wasn't just a piece of wood from a tree. It was foreshadowing the day that God himself, God the Son in the flesh, would die on a tree for our salvation and our healing. Later, the prophet Isaiah would tell us that on the cross, Jesus Christ, he would say, surely 
he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So the tree in Exodus 15 is looking forward to the tree in the New Testament that Jesus hung on, and his blood was shed on, and it shows that this piece of wood, when Moses picked it up in verse 25, and he threw it in the water, that that piece of wood made the bitter water sweet. The tree healed the water of its bitterness. The tree healed the water of the poison that caused sickness and death. The cross can heal a hardened heart of bitterness and unforgiveness. The cross can heal a soul of sinful poison leading to sickness and death. The broken body of Jesus that the cross on the cross provides healing for your physical body. He took wounds on his body, the Bible says, so that our bodies could be healed. So in the wilderness, in the waiting season, between the promises given and the promise experienced, we learn that when we're experiencing bitterness in our hearts, unforgiveness, physical pain and sickness, whatever bitter thing that we're in front of, when we go to the cross, when we trust in the tree where Jesus died and shed his blood and allowed his body to be broken, we do like Moses and we cry out to God and trust the tree to bring healing. Look what the scripture said, Exodus 15. He threw the log into the water and the water became sweet. And watch what God says. He's there. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. There is a promise of divine protection if you're walking with God. If you're letting him lead you and guide you, he promises the things that the world experiences you won't have to experience. Everybody's going to experience pain. He doesn't say, oh, you won't ever experience pain. He just says, you don't have to experience it like the world does because you'll have a hope. You'll have someone to run to. Look at now the next lesson, the next chapter. Uh, same place. Two verses down from this great promise for healing. Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And the people of Israel said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord back in Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. These people, they have seen God bring down ten plagues on Egypt. They have seen God split the Red Sea. They have seen God drown the armies of their enemies. They have seen God take poisonous water and make it healthy to drink. And then a couple of verses later, they say, we're hungry. We're hangry. You know, yeah, God set us free, but God can't feed us. We should have just stayed there. At least we had food back in Egypt. We were in chains, but there was food to eat. Y'all just just let that one sit for a second. Once again, Moses turns to God in prayer. God, he says to Moses, he, God, Moses says to God, he says, God, they're hungry. They're, they need some food. What are we going to do? Look at verse 4 of chapter 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. 
And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So what happens is they get mad at Moses. Moses says, God, we got to feed the people. How are we going to feed the people? God says, go to sleep. When you wake up in the morning, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. And when they wake up in the morning, they see it looks like frost on the ground. And it's this white flaky substance and the and you can go and collect it and they collect it in jars and they can mix it with oil and water and create uh, a cakes of bread to eat and it provides everything they need it provides a full meal when they cook it and they call this substance manna and see in the wilderness God's not just teaching us that he's our healer he's teaching us that he's our provider and he said, you shall not only connect, collect enough for uh, every day for your family's need. He says, don't take any more. Don't take any less. Just take what you need. And I will make sure that there's always enough. On the Sabbath day, he says, you rest on the Sabbath day. The seventh day, that's a day of rest and worship to the Lord. You're not going to collect food that day. So on Friday, go get twice as much. That's the only day you're allowed to get twice as much. And then you'll have enough for the whole weekend. But he says, if you take more or you... You're not going to be blessed. If you, if you take less, he says, I'll make sure you have enough even if you don't get enough. Look at this, verse 18. Whoever gathered enough had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But some of the people got a little greedy. They didn't trust that God would perform the miracle of provision every day. And so they went out and collected more than they needed for the day. And Look at verse 20, 19. Moses said, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Don't try to save some for tomorrow. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. It rotted in their house because they had taken more than they needed. Listen, God will provide for our needs, but God will not enable our greed. He will not enable a greedy heart. In the wilderness, we learn how to trust God as our provider and trust him day by day as we obey his commandments and follow his leadership. Verse 21 says, morning by morning, they gather it each as much as he could eat. And for 40 years, the people of Israel in the wilderness every morning went and collected manna to give them food to eat every day. God is our provider. Exodus calls the manna the bread that God rained down from heaven. And if you flip over to the New Testament, Jesus in John chapter 6 says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. See, manna in the wilderness provided temporary sustenance. But Jesus provides eternal, spiritual, abundant life to his followers. Every page of the book points to Jesus. The manna wasn't really about manna. The manna was about Jesus. It was about if you trust in Jesus, you'll have enough every day. He'll take care of you and provide for you. That's why when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. What did he tell them? Pray, Father, give us today our daily bread. He taught them, make it a regular part of your prayer life to trust God for your day-to-day -day needs and watch God bless you. I feel like the Lord spoke to me this morning and he said, there's somebody that's going to be listening today that you're in a wilderness season in your finances, in your job, in your career. And I feel like God just spoke. God is teaching you in this season 
to trust him with, with what he has already given you so that he can trust you with tomorrow's miracle. I want to say that again. If you're in a wilderness season in your career, your finances, your job, your business, whatever it is, God is teaching you to trust him today with what he's already given you so that he can trust you with tomorrow's miracle. All right, last lesson. I'm, I'm going to hurry. I'm going to land this thing real quick. Exodus chapter 17. They moved to a new place called Rephidim. And it says they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, saying, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out, to Egypt, out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock of thirst? There's a theme here that you begin to see with these people. So Moses again cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. They're thirsty again, but this time there's not even bitter water. There's no water at all. They're in the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. They're in the wilderness. They're dehydrated. They're spiritually and physically dry. And they've forgotten that the God they have been following is the God that could turn the waters of the Nile into blood, that could open up the waters of the Red Sea, and that could turn the bitter water sweet. And so how much easier must it be to just create water? But they just didn't know. They were, they were angry. They were ready to kill the very man who led them into freedom. I've known those churches too. And once again, Moses cried out to God and God tells him, take your staff, the same staff that you struck the Nile River with and it turned to blood, the same staff that you held over the Red Sea and the waters parted and you walked through on dry ground, take that staff to the rock at the base of Mount Horeb. And he says, take the staff and strike the rock. Hit the rock with your staff. And verse 6 says, you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all of Israel. Remember I told you every page of the book points to who? Jesus. Let's go back to that original text in 1 Corinthians I read. Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, thousands of years after this story, he says, I don't want you to forget. Don't forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness. All of them were guided by a cloud. All of them were, uh, were, were, all of them walked through the sea on dry land. In the cloud and in the sea, they were all baptized as followers of Christ. They all ate the same spiritual food. That's the manna. That's the bread from heaven. And all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Paul is saying that before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem, God the Son, Jesus Christ, was with his people in the wilderness. That rock represents Christ. And that Christ who was struck with whips and chains and nails in his hands and in his feet, that Christ who was struck with a spear in his side and from his side flowed blood and water, that Christ is the source of living water. He is the rock of our salvation. He is our redeemer and he can be trusted to provide abundant life for us. In the wilderness season where we often blame the devil, 
grateful for whatever's going on in our life. But what if if waiting in the wilderness isn't about rebuking the devil, but learning how to trust God, how to trust the rock that has already been struck, that to provide us life and life abundantly. John 10 and 10 says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We have a real enemy, and we have to recognize that. But God said, Jesus says, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. And if you believe in me, there will be rivers of living water flowing up from out of you. If you put your faith in me, you will never thirst again. You will never die. You will never experience death like the rest of the world. He has the living water. He is the rock that has been struck and has provided a life through his water, through his miraculous power. He has true spiritual life flowing from his heart that can redeem you and save you and deliver you and sustain you. One last sobering thought. Look at this verse again in 1 Corinthians. All of them drank the same spiritual water. They drank from the rock. The rock was Christ. Verse 5, yet God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as an example to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did. Some scholars say that about 30,000 Israelites were led out of slavery into the wilderness. Other scholars say there's 2 million of them, so that's a big gap. They don't know exactly how many there were. Some say 30,000, some say 2 million. Either way, it was a lot of people. Did you know only two of them made it to the promised land? Whether it's 30,000 or whether it's 2 million is still not a good percentage. Only two made it to the promised land. Their names were Joshua and Caleb. For the rest of Israel, the wilderness journey should have been about 14 days from Egypt to modern day Israel to the promised land. But because of their stubbornness, because of their grumbling, because of their complaining, because of their stiff-necked inability to allow God to lead them, because of their indifference toward following and trusting God, a 14-day journey turned into 40 years. See, the wilderness is a good thing. Hear me. It's where you learn. It's where He teaches you. It's where He molds you. It's where He shapes you. But sometimes the wilderness season gets prolonged by our own stubbornness. Our own stiff necks won't allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and teach us and guide us. So God says, you'll just stay in the wilderness until you're ready to listen. I have to do that with my two-year-old. You can sit in time out until you're ready to say, I'm sorry. You can sit in time out until you're ready to stop crying and do what you're supposed to do. God will put you in time out. He will say, we're going to put all my plans for you on pause until you're ready to do it my way because God doesn't compromise. He says, you don't get the promises and still get to keep the sin. Mm-mm. You don't get the wife and the girlfriend. You got to choose. You got to make a decision. And he says, and you'll sit in time out until you're ready. And unfortunately, some of them never surrendered. They were willing to have God set them free, but they weren't willing to let God lead them. They were willing to let God set them free, but they weren't willing to let God lead them. Can I tell you, as a pastor, I'm not talking to anyone in this room, of course, but I see a lot of people, they want to be forgiven, but they don't want to be led. 
I want God to forgive me and have mercy on me, but I don't want him to tell me how to live my life. I want the forgiveness this book talks about, but I don't want the holiness this book talks about. I, I want the heaven this book talks about, but I want to do my own thing all the way up until the end. And God won't stand for it. He loves you and he has a plan for your life, but he will not compromise with sin. The wilderness is a good thing, but sometimes our stubbornness makes the wilderness a lot harder than it has to be. The wilderness is where God finds out who is truly committed. Who is truly committed? Paul says that what happened to Israel during their wilderness season is an example to us. He says these things happen as an example so that we would not desire or crave evil things as they did. He says learn from their lesson. Well, yes, we have Jesus. We had the blood. We have forgiveness. We've got the cross. We've got the resurrection. But God's standards have not changed. And he says just like God would, would discipline them when they wouldn't correct their ways, he will discipline us. He will and it's not, hear me, we don't like the word discipline. But discipline is an expression of love. The Bible says that the father who doesn't discipline his child hates his son, hates his child. It would be absolute hatred of my daughter if she went up to a hot stove and I didn't warn her and say, don't touch the hot stove. And if she tried to do it again, didn't smack her hand and say, do not touch the hot stove. If I hated her, I'd let her get burnt. But if I loved her, I'd let her feel a little sting from a slap of the hand so she doesn't get burnt. God loves you, so he disciplines you. God loves you and has a plan and a purpose for your life, so he's not willing to compromise with your other journey or your other tra trail that you want to blaze. No, he knows the way. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he wants to take you to the land of promise, but he will not let you take Egypt with you. Three lessons. God will heal your soul, your spirit, and your emotions. Bitter water made into sweet. God will provide for your daily needs. Manna from heaven. And God will redeem you and sustain you and never leave you. Water from the rock that never dries out and never runs out. But these promises are conditional. They are conditional upon us putting our faith in him and letting him follow us. Pastor Katie, would you come? Letting us follow him. Hebrews 10, 23 22 and 23 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful. The wilderness is the gap between the promise given and the promise received. And we can say that because the wilderness gets tough, the enemy will make you want to believe that God won't keep his promises. But actually, the wilderness is all about God preparing you for the promise. When he gives you the promise, he knows you're not ready. So he takes you through a wilderness to get you ready to have the character, the strength, the faith to support the promise and the gift that he wants to give you.